This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Center for Immigration Studies fellow Todd Bensman discusses his book, Overrun, how Joe Biden unleashed the greatest border crisis in U.S. history. He takes a critical look at the immigration issues at the U.S. southern border. He's interviewed by Daily Caller investigative immigration reporter Jenny Tear. Todd, thank you so much for joining me about your book, Overrun. Uh, Tell me why you decided to write this. You have an array of experience in law enforcement with the Texas Department of Public Safety. You're now a researcher with the Center for Immigration Studies, as well as in the past being a journalist down at the border. So tell me why you decided to do this. Well, I think it's the journalist in me that spotted this as a really major historic event early on when it when the uh, crushing numbers first started pouring over the border and I went down there and I saw what was happening uh, I saw this conveyor belt forming of uh, immigrants that would uh, cross the border by the thousands and then be very quickly put on uh, charter buses for the interior and I realized that before too long that this was happening all along the border and nobody was reporting any of it. Uh, this was really shortly after, I think in January of 2021, when I first spotted this right after the inauguration. And um, as I continued to follow this, I realized that the numbers were breaking record after record after record, every national record. I was thinking, this is actually a historic event that we're in the midst of. Uh, and I started documenting, uh, interviewing the immigrants, uh, checking their uh, testimony against uh, policy coming out of Washington. And I realized that they were coming for the policy changes to, as a direct result. And after about a year of this, when I saw that there was there was uh, also a, a, an absence of any sustained media coverage uh, and that it was just worsening in a stair-stepping, escalating way, uh, that this somebody has to document this as uh, somebody has to build a, a foundation, build a foundational building block uh, to establish that this is the greatest mass migration crisis ever that that we've ever seen in the United States. And so that was really kind of what did it for me. It was kind of the journalist in me. This is an incredible story in every dimension. Uh, So, you know, I put it together. And in the book you call it The Invitation, that brought all of these migrants here, this mass migration crisis. What do you mean by that? Yeah, La Invitacion. Uh, that came from a La Linea cartel smuggler that I met by accident under the bridge in Ojenaga, Mexico, uh, where I went to ask the question, why are there so many uh, immigrants crossing through this desolate uh, area uh, when in the past, it's mainly just been a drug smuggling corridor, not a human smuggling corridor. So I went there, and I was looking for immigrants to interview on the Mexican side. And in that particular area, the cartel keeps them under lock and key in safe houses. Every So you can't see them wandering around. 
And I was having a lot of trouble finding uh, immigrants to interview on that side because this is runner traffic. These are people that are not giving up. These are people that are going to um, try to evade Border Patrol. They're not going to be getting on the buses. They're going to be trying to get to I-10 and then get picked up and go to Chicago or wherever. Uh, but after 10 and 15 day uh, backpacking trips through the wilderness, guided by these smuggling guias, they call them. So I had a translator with me, a Texan, uh, uh, and we were wandering around and we decided to get some video under the bridge and we ran into this guy who was on his break <laughs> from his last trip. And um, he's making a lot of money, and he's got cocaine with him under the bridge. They're drinking beer, and they have a couple of prostitutes. And before long, we were like all best friends. Uh, now, normally, my uh, personal security code is to avoid uh, cartel people of at, at any level, anywhere, uh, because that that can be dangerous. They make a quick phone call, and next thing you know, your whole life has changed. But uh, before I knew it, this guy had already checked with his boss without me, know, without me knowing it, and they granted an interview. And so I, I asked him, to what do you owe all of this, you know, the, the, the women, the, the cocaine, you're buying a brand new truck, uh, like all this money? And he, mm. he looked at me and he says, la invitacion. And I said, what does that mean? And he says, well, Joe Biden uh, canceled deportations in the American interior. Nobody's getting deported, and that's an invitation for everybody to come. And so we're cashing in. And he just laughed. He's like the invitation. They've never seen anything like this uh, in, in the area ever. And uh, they're very grateful for la invitacion. Uh, but that, that's, what te that's what told me early on that uh, because of smugglers saying it, mm -hmm. over here in Washington, they're coming up with... Uh, you know, root causes and all these complex issues about why the, a broken system, et cetera. But this La Linea cartel guy knew exactly what it was. They canceled deportation in the U.S. interior, and now they're coming. So it was that simple. Right. So let's talk about the series of policies that started with the Biden administration on both the U.S. side and the Mexican side, because you kind of documented both of those things. What were some of the things you could trace all of this to? Sure. Well, you have to remember that the Trump administration bequeathed a really uh, comparatively secure border to the Biden administration. About uh, first of all, they had he had Title Forty Two, the pandemic control measure, where everybody gets kicked back to Mexico. Everybody gets kicked back to Mexico: men, women, children, families, whatever. Uh, pregnant women, everybody goes back, and you can't apply for asylum. Well, downstream, that made the rest of the world say, I'm not putting my $10,000 down for that. I don't, I'm not coming for the great Mexican dream. I'm coming for the great American dream. And uh, what Biden did was, on the very first day of his administration, was he carved out these huge exemptions for family units, <clears throat> especially in Texas, uh, from 42. So we won't push back the family units. We also won't push back pregnant women who are seven months. <clears throat> and we won't push back 
unaccompanied minors. Uh, and they were, the president himself was saying this out loud in public on TV and everything that we're not sending unaccompanied minors back to Mexico to starve to death was one of his things. So they flooded in. They came in, of course. If you were a family unit, you had a kid, or you were six or seven months pregnant, the first thing in your life, uh, the number one priority in your life is to get that money, pay the smugglers, and get over immediately before they change their minds. Uh, so that was part of it. The other uh, significant development uh, that was part of that was that the Mexican government had been forced for uh, two or three years to uh, take Trump's pushbacks. Thousands upon thousands of families, units, with who are high maintenance and expensive to care for. Under Mexican law, the Mexicans had to care for these family groups, and they had them uh, housed in detention centers across Mexico, 58 different detention centers, and they couldn't wait to get rid of them. And the, they, they couldn't wait to cross either. They didn't want to be in Mexican detention. So the Mexican government was watching the American election very carefully. The polls were saying Biden was going to win, so they drafted a law that had the effect, very secretively, quietly drafted a law that had the effect of requiring Mexico to empty its detention facility of families. Specifically, you cannot keep families in your detention facilities. Uh, and then they put a delayed fuse in it. Um, they, they passed the law 72 hours after it was confirmed that Biden won. And the delayed fuse waited for 60 days through the transition period to implement. That left the Trump administration, if they wanted to do something, 10 days. And as we know, that's not enough to do really much of anything. Uh, and so 10 days before Trump's uh, term ended, the doors unlocked and they poured forth to the border and they waited for inauguration day. Um, the Biden administration put that policy exemption in place. Uh, we can't turn them, to, Mexico won't take them. So we'll take them. And it was on. It literally traces to inauguration day. Uh, I was there about a week later and, um, and saw it for myself. The family units pouring through thousands upon thousands, turning themselves in passively to Border Patrol, uh, who then had a massive crisis on their hands within days. Uh, they couldn't process them in fast enough. They were the, the unaccompanied minors, pregnant women, all the ones that were exempted mm -hmm. and that the Mexicans had released. Um, I interviewed for the book the ambassador to Mexico, the U.S. ambassador, Trump's ambassador, about this. And he's um, quoted in the book uh, telling me that uh, they did not, the Mexican, his Mexican counterparts in the Foreign Service, who had always kept a very close communication relationship with them, sandbagged all of this from the ambassador, uh, from, the, from soup to nuts. They didn't find out about it until they were well into the transition period. And he said it was just a staffer who noticed it some, in some kind of a piece of paper or some, something in the Mexican media. And he says, I hit the roof. Uh, it was outrageous that they didn't tell me about this, that they didn't give us a chance to. Uh, this would have been at the very top of my agenda had I known about it. They tricked us.
So tell me about the conversations you've had with some of these migrants as they've been making their journey, because you've been down in Central America, you've been south of the border, and then the conversations you have with them after they cross. Right. So, uh, you know, I spent a, a lot of the last two years in the field, uh, every chance I could get away for, you know, a week or 10 days or three days or whatever, uh, went to... Um, uh, as far south as uh, Costa Rica and Nicaragua and all through Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, I had an opportunity to, to cut the border from Tijuana on the Pacific coast all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And the, the idea is, it's just the journalist in me is, you know, what are they saying? Why are they coming? Uh, because there seems to be debate about this, about why they're coming. Um, smugglers are tricking them into coming with disinformation, for example, or uh, we have a broken system, Trump broke the system, so they're coming because Trump broke the system, and there's these root causes, maybe there was a hurricane last year somewhere or whatever, uh, poverty in, in, in Haiti. Uh, but when you talk to the immigrants and really dig in uh, about like their decision-making, and what what I learned was that none of them want to uh, lay down their money for smuggling unless they know at a high percentage level uh, that they will get a return on that investment. Uh, because they have to borrow this money, a lot of them don't have $10,000 or $20,000. They raise it from family members in the U.S. who wire it to them. They raise it from the village. They got to pay it back with interest. Um, sometimes they borrow it from the cartels and they're in trouble if they, you know, end up back and they can't pay it. So they saw these policies and it spreads on, on their apps. They let me inside their apps, WhatsApp, Signal, they use them all. Uh, mm -hmm. And the people upstream are communicating instantaneously with the people downstream. We're in. They're letting us in. We're on the bus, selfies, you know, look at me on the bus. Um, here I am in New York uh, with my paper that they're giving us, these papers. And so um, that is the calculation for families, like your family or my family. We would all make a calculation like that. So the odds were extremely high that they were going to get in, uh, that they were guaranteed to get in. Uh, and the the uh, immigrants on the uh, U.S. side uh, that I hung out with uh, were just as happy as clam. I mean, you just, like, this was a gift from God. They couldn't believe that the Americans were doing this. Nobody could believe this. They were so happy. There was so much uh, uh, joy. I mean, I'm watching them getting on the buses. They're, mm -hmm. I got on the buses with them. I'm, like, hanging out with them. Um, they, they um, are understanding that, that their, their status isn't quite settled, but they also understand that they're never leaving. They're in. They are in, and they're going to go meet family, and they're going to get uh, work and whatever. They don't, they're not worried about it. They're in America. And you've documented the aid they've received that kind of incentivizes this. I mean, I've seen it in Central America when I've gone to Guatemala. You see uh, the United Nations down there. Tell me what you've seen while writing this book. It's true. Uh, there, there, there is a, 
constellation of uh, American NGOs, lawyers, uh, United Nations agencies of various kinds that have all coalesced around the traffic, the migrant traffic, all the way down to South America. Uh, I think the, f- the first time that I really saw this, I was in Reynosa, uh, which is right across from McAllen, Texas. Big camp there, crowded camp. Uh, and everybody's in line for something, uh, you know, some kind of aid, this kind of aid, uh, COVID shots, whatever. And one of the lines was uh, they were being handed debit cards. And so I went right up to the front of the line and I started to take photos and video of the debit cards. And I'm asking the worker, what is this? And uh, he says, well, you know, I work with IOM, the uh, International Office uh, for Migration, and these are credit cards. We're handing out all these credit cards. Well, how much is on them? Uh, well, they get four, almost $400 every two weeks, and it's renewable uh, while they wait to find their way across. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the first time I saw that. I tweeted it out. It was controversial. Uh, people didn't believe it, etc. But then I just started digging in and found that this was called the cash-based intervention program and that the United Nations was handing out uh, cash in not just cards but in vouchers all along the trail from Texas to as far south as you ever want to go. I found them everywhere, every city, they're everywhere, handing out money uh, to assist in the, and maybe it's... uh, misery alleviation or uh, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they look at it as humanitarian aid. These people are coming no matter what. Uh, I get their argument, but the counter-argument to that is that, you know, you're making, uh, you're, you're providing a safety net that people in the village uh, who might not come uh, will then decide to come. Well, nobody's going to let me starve. I'm always going to have a hotel voucher. Uh, if worse comes to worse, I'll get one of these cards, and et cetera. And that system is in place all along the border, as well as well-meaning Americans are providing clothing. And, um, you know, I, I met a Venezuelan in Monterey a month or two ago uh, who had a sweatshirt on that said Lisa, you know. And, you know, you just find everybody's got clothing from American uh, sources, you know. So tell me about your findings on asylum. It's a big topic that's up for debate, um, and you have found that a lot of these people coming are not legitimate uh, asylum seekers, that they're coming for economic opportunity. And I believe you also had a very interesting encounter in Guatemala. Could you tell me about that? Sure. The, asi- the U.S. asylum system is really the key to all of this because uh, U.S. law requires, and it doesn't say may, it says shall, uh, detain and deport illegal border crossers. And they can also be charged uh, federally with a federal misdemeanor. Uh, The administration uh, has decided not to follow any of those laws, but even if they did, the asylum law provides an escape uh, hatch to that in the sense that all you have to do is just say, I declare asylum, I'm fleeing persecution, don't send me back, and you get in. 
and so the whole world knows about this scam. Uh, these are it's 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 meant for you know think of the Jew fleeing Nazi Germany or the Vietnamese fleeing uh, communist education camps and that sort of thing. That's not what's going on here. These are uh, impoverished people that are coming to uh, earn money to send back, but they're they're claiming asylum. And the American NGO society and Democrats are, are believing what they're saying. They're going, we can't send them back. So I decided to uh, visit the western highlands of Guatemala, which has emptied out. It's like ghost towns throughout the, uh, I mean, 300,000 Guatemalans left. They're indigenous peoples, and they're claiming asylum. The government's mean to me because I'm indigenous. Uh, and when I went there, I found these massive houses, huge mansions everywhere. Uh, and so I um, spent um, several days in one of the villages, and then I was interviewing all the people building these mansions. And the story was that uh, we sent our son to sit, to work in the U.S. and to send money back so that we could build this you know, 15,000 square foot cement house out here so that they can return. Okay, that's not asylum. That's asylum fraud. Uh, and all of those people, and I, I interviewed three different families that were all building in the different stages of construction uh, that they were building these houses. And when you drive through the Western Highlands, uh, uh, you see to the horizon villages with these giant houses everywhere like mushrooms. You could go to any of these villages and it's the mushroom house phenomenon. And <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it, but the fact that they're planning to return undermines any claim of asylum, but they're in on an asylum claim. And I think the American people need to know this. They need to understand just how bogus this is. Um, the other thing is that you know, I interviewed all the villagers and the town leaders and everything to make sure what I was talking about uh, was what I was going to report was true. What kind did you? Any government? You know, are they mean to you guys for being you know indigenous and whatever? They're like, there's not a police officer for two hours around here. Like we, we're we're good. It's been since the Civil War, 25 years ago, that there was anything bad happened. Uh, people here, what the vice uh, mayor of this one town said. People here die in their bed, you know, of old age. You know, that's what. So, the other issue with asylum is that the uh, Haitians, for example, and the Venezuelans, well, they're living uh, for years already. In, they're not coming from Haiti. The the supermajority of Venezuelans and Haitians that are crossing over the border are not coming from Venezuela or Haiti. Uh, they're coming from safe third countries like Chile, which has got the most powerful uh, and healthy economy in Latin America, and took in hundreds of thousands of Haitians, gave them asylum, residency, work authorization, and they stayed there through the Trump years, comfortably uh, making money. Uh, and when the Biden administration opened the door to them, they threw away their Chilean ID cards crossed the border, said, I'm applying for asylum from Haiti. I'm coming directly from Haiti, skipping over the years that they spent in Chile or Brazil, 
and you can find their ID cards scattered all along the riverbank. I've got grocery bags of these things in my home office. Um, that is the definition of asylum fraud. Those cards, if they were to be caught with them in, in the U.S., would be evidence against their claim. You were safe. Why are you claiming that you need asylum now? And of course, I've interviewed so many Haitians, uh, and I always ask them about this. And they're like, yeah, I love Chile, the nightlife, the beaches, uh, et cetera. But uh, one of them told me, for example, I asked, you know, how's life compared to Haiti in Chile? And he's like, it's a thousand times better. Just great. I'm like, then why would you leave Chile to come to America? Because his, his eyes kind of glazed over and he said, because America would be a million times better. So these people are just upgrading their lifestyles, taking advantage of these policies. But the American people believe that they're fleeing horrible Haiti. It's all a lie. The Venezuelans that we're seeing right now, supermajority of Venezuelans, have been living for five, six, seven, and eight years in Colombia, in Peru, in Chile, and all these seven, ten different other countries uh, in, in relative prosperity, certainly not being you know, uh, fired on by uh, Venezuelan troops or something. Uh, but they're all claiming, I can't go back to Venezuela. It's, it's, all, it's all predicated on a lie. And I think that my chapter, Insane Asylum, just lays it all exposed. And we need to fix this asylum system. It's a tweak is all that would be necessary to fix that. And tell me how rhetoric has played a role in this. You kind of document the shift that has been with Democrats before the election. You know, in recent years, former President Barack Obama, uh, some of these migrant advocacy folks. Why has there been this shift to push for less detention, uh, less restrictions on the border. Like you said, there's not really prosecutions of illegal crossings. So what has changed? I think what changed was Donald Trump came into the picture uh, with a, an aggressive sounding uh, immigration policy that so infuriated the American left and especially the far left that they reacted in an overcompensating way against the Trump policies. That's what I think happened. And they were empowered as a result. Uh, now, the traditional Democrat uh, Party coalition, the people that are kind of in the left to the rightish in the center around there, uh, were always pretty well, um, you know, border uh, security people. I mean, Barack Obama, they used to call him the deporter in chief. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Clinton passed, you know, really what would be considered today draconian laws. He, he criminalized illegal entry. Uh, the typical Democrat was pretty well in favor of border security as a way to protect the American worker and the unions and uh, some of their, their, their base coalition. But in this case, the... Uh, the far left was, and even the, the middle left, was so supercharged by Trump's immigration policies that they gained power. They gained real power. And uh, in, the, in the campaigns, when the, in the Democratic primary campaigns, you suddenly saw 
all 12 or 15 candidates talking about no deportation, no detention at all, amnesty for everybody, um, defang ICE, abolish ICE even, um, you know, ending um, uh, any kind of um, prosecution, uh, decriminalizing uh, border crossings. That rhetoric, that discussion, those discussion points were in campaign literature of like mainstream Democratic politicians, all of them. Uh, and this is something that is that is unbelievable in American politics. Uh, that ideology uh, had always been rejected and kept in a closet over here. Uh, but the uh, purveyors of that were given power when Biden won election. And they seized the immigration portfolio and put those ideas and that rhetoric into action. Um, I noticed that a lot of that rhetoric and a lot of that, that ideology came from Antifa on the streets when they were doing Occupy ICE uh, demonstrations in this campaign, uh, their placards. I, I was in the intelligence uh, business still at that time in Texas. And uh, we and my team had to study these Antifa groups that were uh, occupying federal properties in Texas and threatening ICE agents. And um, there, were, there were a lot of um, uh, physical threats that were happening about ICE. And we had to get smart on those groups on the very far left. And when the presidential campaigns came in, I immediately recognized all of it. Uh, and I point out in the book that I was able to kind of connect that rhetoric to how it became policy, uh, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's campaigns were filled with it. Uh, and Bernie Sanders had been a tough guy on the border for years, and then he switched into this as well. Uh, so that's where we are to this to this moment. Uh, that 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 ideology and those. Uh, advisors and uh, people that are in DHS, the White House, State Department, uh, political appointees are from that. Right. And you talk about how Democrats have kind of seized on this narrative, especially from your upbringing. You're Jewish. You, um, you know, your Bubby uh, fled Europe uh, due to persecution. And this is kind of the narrative we're hearing that, you know, well, these people are fearing, fleeing persecution just like the past generations did, just like Bubby did. Yeah. Tell me why that's not the case. Right. Well, you know, the, the I think the, the common narrative that comes uh, from that far left fringe precinct that I'm talking about uh, is widely accepted. It's gotten a lot of traction, a lot of purchase in the United States, which is that, well, we have to let them in because they are fleeing definite death. They are going to die. They, If we turn them back, they're going to die. Uh, and having spent time in their countries and time speaking with them, it's just simply not true. It's It's just not true. Uh, some of them have had problems, uh, you know, like maybe people who live in South Chicago. Uh, but people who live in South Chicago are not moving to Europe now. Uh, you know, there are other places to go. 
Uh, and if you're crossing 10 different countries uh, to get away from whatever the problem was, you're not for real. Uh, my uh, great-grandparents came from the uh, Pale of Settlement, uh, who, and they were under uh, constant attack by Cossacks who were raiding and burning and pillaging and uh, murdering Jews in their villages and these pogroms that went on and on and on endlessly, uh, and nobody would take them. They had literally nowhere else to go, uh, and they were able to secure permission to board ships to show up in, at Ellis Island and, and a few other places, and um, they then were and they were subject to deportation back in the uh, early teens, um, but they were uh, permitted legally to enter the United States. They were for real. We have great documentation about uh, those people. We have great documentation about Vietnamese boat people, uh, what they were leaving in uh, South Vietnam uh, re-education camps. These are um, not gulags and Nazis and Cossacks in Honduras. Uh, they are they are different than uh, my bubby because they had a bad crop or they're tired of living uh, in a dirt hut, and that's the extent of it. But our asylum laws were not built for those people. Unfortunately, uh, it, it's just I mean we can sympathize with being poor and wanting a better life, but there's a legal pathway. You can't just cross illegally and be allowed in to this country. It's not up to you. It's up to the people that live here. Uh, just like uh, it was in the time of my great-grandparents, uh, it was up to them to grant them entry, legal entry, and they came. They wouldn't have come, I don't believe, I don't think that they were the type of people that would have just broken in, uh, no matter how bad it was. Let's talk about the national security element, because as you noted, you have a background in this, and you've also collected tons of IDs and documents. I mean, my question is, like, why are people dumping those documents? I have my own bags of them. I've seen them. I know, I know for a fact they're true, and it's, it's all over the place. So is there a potential national security element to that? I think most of the ID document uh, dumping going on um, is, is related to the asylum fraud issue. But uh, it also would behoove somebody who, for example, already has a criminal history in the U.S. to hide their identity uh, so that it's not very easy. Uh, if they know that we're not fingerprinting or taking biometrics because there's a, an onslaught on and we don't have time, we can't do it, uh, you might want to throw away your ID and come up with a new name and a new ID. But one of the, the, the problems with this level of mass migration is that everybody who is entering the U.S. this way is more or less a stranger, almost everyone. Uh, and we don't have a way to do background checks on people from Venezuela, for example or people from Syria. We, those countries don't like us and vice versa. You can't call the Syrians and ask for a criminal history check. You can't call the Maduro uh, regime and ask for, uh, you can't call the Cubans to ask for a criminal history check. So we have no idea uh, 
you know what what's in their hearts and minds and that's a risk that is a gamble uh, but we also have seen the greatest number ever of people being apprehended at the border who are on the FBI's terrorism watch list already uh, we have traffic coming from all the nations of the Middle East I've met them uh, we've seen Iranians I've met uh, people from Chechen Chechnya uh, I've met there is a, uh, a, a shelter in Tijuana that found that there was enough demand for their services that they are only taking Muslims, uh, immigrants, to help them get over the border, give them shelter, food, uh, a place to stay, uh, halal uh, food and all the rest. And I went to visit that shelter. I spent a week in and around it. I interviewed the uh, migrants there and the director. Uh, and, you know, they are two blocks from the wall. And most of them are just illegally crossing in. Uh, and nobody uh, on the American side has ever bothered to interview her or the director or to ask for in information from them about the people coming through. When you have 98 people on the terror watch list cross in 2022, some of them probably went through this place, and there's intelligence information about them. Um, also, uh, we should remember that in this mass migration, 40% of everybody hitting that border, more than that actually, for the first time ever, it's usually 3% or 5%, are from somewhere other than Mexico or Central America. They're from 150 countries around the world. I've met, and you probably have too, uh, Africans from just about every nation. I mean, Ghana, Benin, like you just can't even, everywhere. They're coming in, Cameroon, Congo, uh, Somalia, Morocco, Mauritania, uh, you name it. Uh, they're coming through. And, you know, I've met Liberians and Sierra Leoneans, and there have been just atrocious wars there with, um, you know, terrible, the worst kinds of uh, human rights violations that you can imagine right out of a horror flick uh, who are crossing our border, and we don't know who, whether they were victims or the perpetrators. They're th tossing their IDs. I found them. You can find their passports. Um, that means that we probably in the coming years will find that we are giving sanctuary to warlords and people that, that committed terrible crimes against humanity. Uh, all of these things, terrorism, uh, espionage, lots of Chinese crossing through uh, the border, people from Iran, uh, people who are from nations that are adversarial to us that would love to uh, plant some some uh, good old-fashioned spies in, in the United States, and we would never know it. Tell me about the gotaways, those people who run. They're evading apprehension from any border authorities. Well, so the, the border crisis generally is uh, bifurcated into kind of two looks. The one is the one that you can see readily by uh, Fox News drones, uh, over Eagle Pass, right, where the 3,000 cross and they just sit there passively and they wait to be processed in. Those are the chosen ones. They know that they're getting in. All they have to do is show up. But there is this whole other dimension that is happening uh, because Border Patrol has been redeployed to process those 
uh, people, and so they're off the line, so to speak. Uh, and you can drive for you know a hundred miles and never see a single border patrol because they're all in the facilities taking care of children and you know keeping them uh, you know getting them processed in. So that has led to a rush of the not chosen, the people that know that they're not getting in, they're still subject to 42, uh, or they have criminal history uh, that is disqualifying. I have met so many. I mean, every trip I go down there, I meet some perfect English-speaking Honduran or Guatemalan or whatever uh, who speaks perfect English, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well... I um, I lived in the U.S. for 12 years, and uh, I got deported, which usually means you committed a crime, and once you served your time, we deported you. Uh, so I, my next question is always, oh, you got in trouble, huh? And it's like, yeah, I got in trouble, but I'm going back now. Why are you going back now? Because the border's open. Mm-hmm. And so the runners, uh, we call those runners and gotaways, uh, is astoundingly huge. It's a huge number. It used to be 20,000, 30,000 a month. Uh, it's 60, 70, 80,000 a month now, and it's been like that for a really long time. That pool of runners and gotaways uh, is very likely ha- is a, has a high concentration of criminality in it. And those people are running to get to the deportation free zone of the interior America. They understand, like my uh, guia under the bridge, the guide, that this is la invitacion, that if they could just get through to the interior, nobody's going to deport them, uh, even if they have terrible criminal records. Uh, One more thing about that. CBP keeps, um, they, 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 they very proudly issue press releases Every time they catch a child molester or a gang member or a murderer, and uh, if you spend time on their public website, uh, you can just go for miles and miles and miles of rapists, murderers, you know, axe murderers, it, whatever, domestic abusers, serial manslaughter, uh, you know, DWI uh, uh, killers. Um, uh, robbers, uh, uh, just every possible terrible kind of criminal, those are the ones they caught and put a press release about. Mm-hmm. We've had a million and a half not get caught uh, right on through, and those people are here. So journalists, researchers like yourself, we take risks in telling these stories. You've had some interesting encounters while documenting this. And one in particular in Costa Rica. Could you detail that for us? So I, I went to Costa Rica, and yeah, there there is uh, you know I try to reduce risk. Uh, you know, it, it is you're in cartel territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you follow the rules and you're careful, you're going to be good. Uh, you know, and, and you don't spend too much time asking the wrong questions in the wrong places. That sort of thing. Just be smart. But there is risk, as you know, if you go down there, um, you know, there, there are things that can happen. Um, I went to, in, in the summer of 2022, to check out a part of the international trail that uh, comes out of the Darien Gap and then moves through Costa Rica in the northern part 
at the border with Nicaragua and they move into Nicaragua. Um, that is a very underreported area. Um, you know, the the, the uh, smugglers that work there are working out in the open. You can go talk to them and film and watch what they're doing. And the immigrants are coming off buses, and they're they are um, you know being picked up by these smugglers and brought to the Nicaraguan border. A town called Los Chiles is where where I found that happening. And I was there for, I don't know, probably about a week uh, working with the smugglers and getting to know them and interviewing them. And uh, I eventually started to hear about um, uh, a, a scenario where they deliver the immigrants to Nicaraguan soldiers who have been corrupted. And um, one of the smugglers, a guy named Felix, I happened to uh, you know, persuade to let me follow one of his loads up to the border to deliver them to the soldiers. And he himself had been a, um, he was a deserter so from the Nicaraguan army, and he knew guys. And so that's how he had his, his business. So he, they apparently approved it. We uh, you know, took the load, we drove in. But unbeknownst to me, uh, the other smugglers, when they got wind that he was taking us in, uh, warned him not to take us in, and uh, they threatened him, but he didn't tell us this. <laughs> he didn't tell me this. I had a translator uh, with me who uh, actually made his living in executive protection. It's not why I hired him, but it turned out to be useful a little bit later, and um, you know, I, we followed this load of Haitians to the border, and the Nicaraguan soldiers came out of the jungle on a motorbike. I described this, and uh, we kind of watched the handoff. And uh, on the way back, uh, we were accosted by a group of the smugglers that didn't want us to go there. And there was an exchange. Uh, there were threats, very explicit threats made in Spanish uh, that were translated. and. My executive protection guy and the smuggler that I had in the back of the car said, "This is for real. You gotta, you gotta get out of here." Uh, and so there was a uh, flight. I'll just say that you know we we fled. We had to flee right away. Uh, so there was things like that. You know, a kind of a white knuckled thing that happened. Um, there were some other incidents that have happened over time, but you know, it's all part of the, you know. As you know, it's part of the game, you know. Absolutely. Could you tell me why you decided to write this as this issue is ongoing? As we speak, you know, the border continues to be overrun, as your book is titled. So tell me why you started writing it and completed it, you know, while this is still continuing. So it's it's it, a couple reasons. One is that it is hard to uh, write a book that freeze frames in the middle of a story that's still going on. I'll, I won't deny that uh, because there are things that have happened since since the book was uh, that w- was was submitted that I would love to have put in, in there. But uh, my feeling is that uh, two years of this drama down there provided enough data to be able to uh, explain to the American people how we got here. Uh, what happened, really what happened here. Uh, At a time when the Congress is starting to change and there are elections coming up where decisions can be made, uh, that it's not too late to 
uh, or too early to document this and explain what we're in. Uh, and one, I guess, a, a big catalyst for this is, you know, I was a journalist for 23 years. I mean, that's how I made my living for a long, long time. I'm classically trained in, you know, my degrees are all in journalism, uh, and I worked at big newspapers, et cetera. And I just saw that that this incredible story was not being covered. None of the the causes uh, of this were being documented, uh, and in fact, mostly disinformation was being purveyed in the popular media. Or the popular media, I mean like the big newspapers, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, never really quite got at the the real root causes of this. They would just go with like Kamala Harris's root causes. And um, I feel like there's a void in public knowledge. Uh, And I, I authentically believe this. And I really hope that the book fills this gap uh, and if if somebody wants to build on it from here, uh, great. But this is a roadmap into how we got here, what caused this thing. And we need to know how we got here so that we can, if we want, get out. you got to know the, the, the path in uh, if you want to take the same path out. And I, I really hope that the book provides that service and that it uh, dispels a lot of the misinformation about like why are they coming uh, how why when did this start it's just did, did Biden really do this like this could can't just be this has got to be some partisan thing uh, but it's it's not uh, it's, it's I intended this thing to not be partisan uh, I tried to apply my um, training to this book it's a reported book so where do we go from here? You've documented now some issues within the interior of the country that you can trace back to the border situation right now, to this crisis. Where do we go in you know, the asylum system? Where do we go with uh, now having to educate young children who come as unaccompanied minors? What do we do as a country? So I think that the country is going to have to weather this storm for... Uh, uh, at least through the to the 2024 national election, uh, the uh, Biden administration uh, got through the midterms without uh, being damaged by this issue, uh, and for a variety of reasons. So um, the president was asked, "Are you planning to change any policies?" And the answer was, "No." The more they find out about our policies, the more they like them. So uh, this is going to continue. Uh, and we've had about, uh, you know, we're, we're in the millions now of people coming in, and there will be millions more by the election. And I think that the American people will have a decision uh, point uh, at that time that the Congress will uh, then have opportunities to uh, start to look for legislative fixes to the asylum system. Uh, if they really want to fix this, the Democrats, I believe, uh, will will come to their senses, like the traditional, uh, like the, the Barack Obamas and the uh, Bill Clintons and the pre-2016 Bernie Sanders even. 
uh, and that they'll come back to center at some point and put the fixes in that uh, cause that that end mass migrations. We should not have to to be subjected to this kind of catastrophe over and over and over again. Uh, there are ways that can fix this thing, uh, and those are outlined in the book. Uh, there are recommendations. Uh, key rec- legislative recommendations and some things having to do with foreign policy that could very quickly turn this thing around, very quickly. Yeah, and you've covered the border uh, for years now. And just taking a step back after researching and doing this book and then previously covering the issue during previous administrations, what's your reaction just as a human being, like seeing how chaotic it's been. Is is there anything that's ever been like this in the history of our country? No. This this is on the order of, this will go down in U.S. history. Uh, you know, it might take 20 years, but they should be teaching this in high schools. Uh, this is something like an Ellis Island level event. We will have, by the time this thing's over, you know, as many as 8 million new people, and if the Democrats continue this policy for another four years after this, 15, 20 million new people crossing in through the border living in the United States. Um, the, the immigrants, uh, I, I, can't, I can't fault them too much. They're rational people who are living in um, impoverished circumstances or you know, can easily better themselves by breaking a few rules, bending a few rules that the Americans don't seem to mind breaking. Uh, so if the Americans are okay with it, we're okay with it. Uh, and I see the children and, uh, and the families, and uh, you, know, you, you have to empathize with them, but it's not their decision to make. That's, that's the problem, and they are strangers to us. We have no idea who they are or where they're coming from or what they're going to do here. Uh, that's why countries have borders. Um, the United States should not be the first and only country that has ever existed to just blow off its borders, to not have any kind of anything down there. Everybody who comes here, who can make it here, gets in. No country has ever done that. We don't do that. Nobody does that. Uh, I don't understand why uh, we have to be this grand global experiment with no borders. Uh, but that's kind of where we've, uh, where we've arrived at the moment. So um, I, think, I think that, that um, Democrats at some point will come to their senses uh, on this issue. There's a reason why... Uh, Democrats in the Democratic Party uh, has has opposed this kind of thing because it hurts their base. Uh, the 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 uh, these millions of people drive down wages among people who are in the lower socioeconomic uh, ranges already inside the United States. Uh, black communities, Latino communities that are legal. Um, poor people that are just trying to get by now have just all these millions of people who are going to do it for cheaper. Uh, and it's going to hurt the Democratic base at some point. Do you think at that point it will be too little too late? Uh, you know, we're going to have... Listen, we as of the time that we're speaking now, there's a pretty long list of U.S. cities 
that have declared emergencies in 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 within their municipal boundaries and are demanding federal bailouts uh that's because these numbers are so vast uh the the demographic of the supermajority of them is uh low education uh low resources low skill uh they're coming in with strong backs and maybe a willingness to work but a huge number of them are on our social welfare rolls uh they're uninsured they're getting free medical care we have hospital systems that are already declaring bankruptcy that are in the red from this and i think that that is just going we have school districts that are uh suddenly having to contend with huge surges of migrant children who don't even speak english and and often didn't even go to school in their own countries uh so they're showing up and uh you know uh, in the book i have on uh, the final chapter uh, a a case study of the cleveland texas independent school district which has suffered from an onslaught of 100,000 illegal immigrants in this tiny community around plum grove and cleveland texas in the last 4 or 5 years and what that did to that school district and how they're having to contend with that bond elections uh can't keep up with uh purchases of portable classrooms ESL teachers uh just all kinds of social problems in the schools etc and uh I believe that that is happening across the nation right now already uh but they're suffering in silence and they're not getting any media attention Uh, but I'll show you what that looks like in um, in the final chapter of this book. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for telling this story and for documenting it. Because, as you said, there's just so little of us that actually do. I uh, really appreciate it, and uh, hope everyone buys the book. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it, and I'm honored. Thanks for the attention. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwords podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest non-fiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on best-sellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with non-fiction book publishing industry experts.